You ready? Let's do this. Welcome to the Grow Oklahoma podcast. This is Dr. Ogunsaya. This is a podcast that is an initiative of the tracking and evaluation core of the Oklahoma Shared Clinical and Transitional Resources, the OSCTR. In this podcast, we highlight the processes of clinical and translational researches in Oklahoma and those who support them. Today, I have an associate professor of epidemiology in the Department of Biostatistics and Epidemiology at the Hudson College of Public Health here in the University of Oklahoma Health Sciences Center. She graduated in 2006 with a Bachelor of Science in Nursing. She has worked as a pediatric oncology nurse. In 2009, she completed a Master's of Public Health in Epidemiology at OU with a focus on childhood cancer. Upon graduation, she worked as a research nurse in pediatric oncology before returning to the OU campus here to complete her doctorate with a goal of contributing to cancer research in Oklahoma. She's a member of the Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma. She is working, she's working on projects to understand health disparities and risk factors related to cancers and other chronic health conditions. She has recently been funded through the NIH to evaluate access to COVID-19 testing and vaccination among American Indians with chronic health conditions. She's working with the Strong Heart Study, which historically focused on cardiovascular disease to understand metabolic risk factors for cancers among American Indian people. In partnership with the Chickasaw Nation, she's a co-principal investigator of an NIH-funded research project to evaluate exposure to both aeroallergens, that is pollens, and anthropogenic air pollution, for example, ozone and asthma exacerbations using mobile health devices and personal air samplers. She is working with the Cherokee Nation to understand factors related to tobacco cessation among cancer survivors. Whew, that was a very loaded resume. And this is just barely scratching the surface. Everyone, please join us in welcoming Dr. Amanda Janet to the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Thank you. And I recall when we met, uh, we actually met off campus, and this was during the AMC um, conference. We had both been sponsored by Dr. Valerie Williams, and I remember when uh, there was a grant writing component of it, which was before the conference started, and they were like, oh, we have two people from Oklahoma, and I know I'm from Oklahoma. There's no way someone else is from Oklahoma in Atlanta here. And I turn around, and I like, oh, yeah, she's the other one. And I'm like, where you go? You're OU as well. You're like, yeah, I'm OU. And we both had a chuckle, like, how can we be from the same university? Both of us didn't know we're coming here. But um, anyways, um, nice to have you back and um, have you on the podcast. Yeah, thanks. I know we feel like our campus is small, but maybe it's just big enough that we have to yeah, be at a conference to meet some of our colleagues. I know, right? I know, right? I know, right? And I think this is probably one of the reasons why we started this um, podcast, because we do, great work on, we do great work on the campus, but sometimes it feels very siloed, where you don't get to meet people and know what kind of what kind of work is being done on campus. So hence filling the gap. So let's talk about your childhood just growing up. I'm always curious to know what journey um, or any events from your childhood that will have maybe predicted your current path in research and cancer awareness and exploring all this social determinants of health when it comes to cancer survivorship. Yeah, so I've always had an interest in cancer, whether research or patient care, um, since I was a kid. So uh, my older sister uh, died from leukemia as a child. Yeah. She was nine Sorry years old. Yeah. I mean, I, this was before I was born. So I actually never got to meet her, but it's always yeah. been part of my family. It's always been, you know, really 
just challenging subject in my family, but um, it's always inspired me to want to help kids who had cancer and then contribute to you know either caring for them or trying to understand why they got sick. So I know my mom still tr- wonders why my sister was one of the ones that got leukemia. Um, and then um, my husband, it turns out, when I met him, I learned he was a cancer survivor. He had had a, a, a bone tumor as a teenager. And whenever he first told me that, I was like, shocked and I'm like wait you're the first person I know that has survived cancer you know just other family members had passed away from cancer and so it was really inspiring to see like oh you can survive this you can come out on the other end Um, and so as part of that family history and then um, with my husband having had um, cancer and being a cancer survivor um, it really inspired me to uh, want to do something with cancer, whether, you know, I was still trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life when I was an undergraduate. Um, and I went back between multiple majors and ultimately settled on nursing. My mom is a nurse. She became a nurse because of her experience in the hospital with my sister. Wow. Um, and so, and I was trying to figure out where to go. She's like, well, why don't you try nursing? So I did. <laughs> I applied, <laughs> got in. Um, and then as I was working as a nurse, um, I was, I found myself again wondering, you know, how did these kids get sick? Why are these kids getting sick and not others? And then why are some doing really well and some don't do so well with their cancer treatment? Um, so I kind of stumbled into epidemiology through, I had, had a community health nursing course in my undergraduate program where they talked about a hepatitis A outbreak and epidemiology related to that. I thought that sounds kind of cool. And then as I was um, going through the master's program in nursing, where I was trying to taking that route of a nurse practitioner, um, I talked to one of my advisors and she was like, well, would you describe wanting to do with your career, working with the community, doing research? It sounds more like, you know, something other than a nurse practitioner. So why don't you do some exploring and then we'll talk again. So that's when I actually found that we had a college of public health. I didn't know that it was here when I was in nursing school. You're just in your classes, nine to five, basically. You don't know what's going on in the outside world. And once I read what epidemiology was, I was like, okay, I'm hooked. <laughs> and then that's all I <laughs> Wow. That's, I mean, first of all, sorry to hear about your sister and what an amazing story. And I think it's that relentless pursuit of questions which it seems like that's what you just went with. And then as you were asking those questions, you were getting more clarity and that has formed your life's purpose. And then special, you know, shout out and kudos to your mom going back to get a second. I don't know what I was a third degree in nursing as a result of what happened to her. And, you know, so just wanted to highlight that. And thank you so much for sharing that. And I, I think another lesson here is even though you didn't know there was anything called public health, you never let go of those questions in your heart. Like, why are some kids doing better? And I think it definitely explains why you started your career as a pediatric oncology nurse. And then you bridged that with epidemiology. And now as your role as associate professor, you're able to marry all those interests and build a career out of it. I think that's very, very neat to see. So for those that are listening, here's just a, a nudge to just keep charging. You just never know when the answers will um, emerge, you know, at the end of the road or just along your, your, your pathway. So, Let's just talk about um, your your career right now. I mean, is it fair to still call you early career? I mean, NIH designation, you're still an ESI, early stage investigator, right? So for those, yeah, yeah. Yeah, right? yes. So okay. I have, I think, one, I think I have a year and a half left of early stage investigator status. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> unless, unless I know there's some circumstances that can extend that, like you have a, 
uh, maybe a, a death in the family, knock on wood, or you have more babies. I know they can extend that. But let's call it an ESI for now, right? What advice would you have for those that are starting their research careers, especially those that might be from your path where you never even thought about research? It was more of just, I'm just going to be a nurse and find out more stuff. And as you were in your career, you started finding more about, oh, that's public health, that's epidemiology. For those that are still in that nebulous phase of their life, what kind of advice would you give them for starting out? their research careers. Yeah, so when it came to look, I think looking at what other opportunities are out there. So, you know, there's we there's a shortage of nursing, nurses. We desperately need nurses. So um, I, I think if you want to continue in that path, that's wonderful. If you want to you know, consider branching out and doing some of the more um, like a nurse practitioner role, clinical nurse specialist. That's great. I found that for myself, um, that just wasn't where I felt like I had the strengths. I love taking care of my patients, especially getting to know the families. The oncologists I worked with were the most amazing doctors. Um, and then the families, you just really get to know them over that amount of time. But again, like having a good mentor who, you know, when I was asking for a letter of recommendation for the nurse practitioner program, she's like, mm, tell me what you want to do and let's see if this is really the correct path. So I think talking to your mentors, taking that time, and then also allowing yourself the time to see what other opportunities there are. You know, I picked up that little nugget of epidemiology from one course in nursing school on focus on community health, and then it came back to me later. So sometimes there's little nuggets appear and maybe you don't think too much of them at the time, but I still think about that today of reading about that. I'm like, oh, that sounds really cool, investigating an infectious yeah. disease outbreak. And I don't really yeah. do a lot of that work, but still was inspiring to, you know, it stuck with me over time. I love that. Talk to your mentors and seek other opportunities. That's a very, very poignant point. Um, so as you imagine, well, as you know, you've probably had some challenges and growing pains beginning your research journey are you at liberty to tell some examples and how you're able to overcome those or if not if you haven't fully overcome them how are you managing them as aware yeah so of course a big part of our jobs as researchers is getting grant funding and <sighs> it's also one of the hardest things about our job um competing for national institutes of health grants is really it's very competitive so maybe one in ten grants gets funded depending on, you know, the topic and the area of, of interest. Um, but I think the point is to keep trying to just submit, submit, submit. Um, I'm trying to do that by just continuing to submit. Even if I know my grant's not perfect, I've got to get it out the door because if I don't submit it, I'm definitely not getting the, propo- I'm not getting the funding. Um, and I've, you know, I think one of the things that I struggled with, especially in those first few years, um, after I started in my faculty position, was the rejection. I Mm. wasn't used to having that kind of rejection and and sort of feeling like I had failed at not getting the grants. And you you read these critiques and they're like, you know, you didn't do this, this, this. Um, And so I thought, man, maybe I'm not a good researcher. Maybe I'm not a good epidemiologist, but I've learned over time that that's the nature of that process. And I've learned not to take it quite as personally as maybe I did those first few times. But I found, you know, if you just keep submitting, you know, revise it, resubmit, find a better opportunity, uh, find one that's maybe more tailored to your area of of interest and 
that and we've had some success doing that so i think that's one of the things is to just write the grants they're scary they're big they're a lot of work but if you the more you write them the more you do them the, the better you get at it i definitely agree one of my hesitation joining academia was actually grant writing because it just gave me palpitations thinking about it. And my very first grant, of course, it wasn't funded, <laughs> but I got a lot of feedback and I'm like, okay, thank you. And I, you know, shoved it somewhere. And my mentor was like, um, what's that grant again? You have to resubmit me. I'm like, no, it was rejected. I was like, yeah, you have to resubmit me. I'm like, why? Because you just have to. And I did it and, you know, it got funded, you know, thanks, thankful for that. That's great. And this has been, I can't even count how many grants I've written, but Yes, to what Dr. Janet said. The more you write, the better you be. And you're not always going to start from ground zero because all of your experiences from your previous grant writing fits into that. And if you're working in a team, they also bring their expertise. So don't think like you have to do everything by yourself. And on campus, there's so many um, um, help available through, if it's cancer related, the Stevens Cancer Center has a great writing core you can reach out to. They have the biostatistics core you can reach out to. OSCTR also provides um, some form of grant writing help. And then um, last but not the least is serve as a reviewer on grants. Um, having to know what's on the other side of the conversation really helps because you, if you're writing your grants, sometimes you can't see the forest for the trees. But as a way, you are different as a reviewer, almost like you can see everything. You're like, why not bring that same, um, what's the word? duality to your grant writing um, role. So to be a, a good grant um, writer, you serve as a reviewer. I think that would also help. So thanks for that reminder, Dr. Janet. Yeah. Um, so you, you, you're, you're, you're a family, you have a family. Um, you alluded to being married, right? So how have you been able to cope with what they call that work-life integration, even though I really don't know what that means? <laughs> how have you been able to cope with that, you know, given all the hats you wear as a wife, as a mom, as a career person and all of the wonderful things you do? Yeah, and it's definitely a struggle. I, def- I have not mastered this balance slash integration, however we want to call it. So I do have a 10 year old daughter. Um, and we, you know, part of what I try to do is remember that I'm setting an example for her as to how I'm working. So, um, a few years back during the sort of stay at home times of the pandemic and she, like when she was out of school, I'd be working from home full time. So I'd be trying to get her schoolwork done, but also trying to get my own work done. And I struggled to balance and that was an extreme time. But, um, a a few weeks later I was cleaning, going through her homework and cleaning things out. And I found, um, a document or a piece of paper that said, you know, what do you, um, what do you want for Christmas or what is something that you want to tell, ask Santa for or something along those lines. And it was, I wish my mom's job would not be so hard and so stressful for her. Something along those lines. I wish my mom didn't have to work so much. And that was like a knife to the chest, you know, I was like, Oh man, what, what kind of an example am I setting that I'm not enjoying this. I'm not, I'm not enjoying things. I'm not balancing very well. So after that, I tried to really make it a point, you know, when I'm with her, I'm with her. I'm engaged. I'm not perfect at it. There's times when I do work and she's kind of sitting there with me. Um, but for the most part, I really try to be aware and, and be with her when we're together. So we're like right now doing a little book club together, you know, trying to do a book club and then try to, you know, do fun things together. So it's a challenge. I think um, everybody has to figure out how to balance and integrate work in their home life that what works best for them and having a supportive partner is really helpful with that. 
Um, and then she's just, she's a great kid. So it's not like it's that, you know, I don't have to worry too much about her, but I want to make sure that yeah. she, I set a good example for her as she, you know, continues to grow and, and looks to what her career might be. Wow. I mean, thanks for sharing that. And I feel like most of us are where you are. The only difference that my daughter is for, so there's only so much articulation she can do, but I know I still bring some of my stress home and it's not like we don't enjoy the job, but there's just certain things that stays with us and it's kind of hard to dissociate from being that professor mode to mommy mode. And my family knows when I'm in grand season because it's just like 50 shades of moodiness. Like, you know, I'm like, yeah, on edge and just snappy and, you know, but thanks for um, reminding us that, yeah, um, it's it's doable. And I don't, I don't think it's more of perfection than just trying your best, which it seems you are and having that dialogue um, with your daughter, which also seems that you are. So, but, but really, thank you so much for um, being vulnerable with that question. So let's talk about your research. My goodness, I stumbled on so many words just trying to read all the things you're doing. <laughs> How would you explain your research to a fifth grader? Yeah, so I'm lucky that I have a fifth grader. So, and we Yay. talk about <laughs> epidemiology a lot. Um, and so the way I talk to her about it is that I'm trying to understand why some people get sick with something like cancer, for example, and why some people don't. But also, why do some people do better with their cancer treatment, but other people struggle? To, to get through that treatment um, in a healthy way. So I think that's how I, I talk to her. She seems to think that I only study infectious diseases, which I do a little bit of COVID work, as many of us do these days, and address try to address health disparities. But um, So I'm trying to convey to her that I mainly do cancer work. But yeah, so I think but epidemiology is so broad. We can look at infectious diseases, chronic diseases, injuries, all kinds of things that relate to yeah. our overall health. Okay, okay. Thank you for that. And I love how you just put it simply why some people get sick, why some don't get sick. Now, you've also forwarded into pediatric oncology. And I think the beautiful thing about you is that you've seen the clinical side and now being able to merge that expertise with what you're doing off the field, off the uh, off clinic as it were. So could you just share some insights or um, key insights or findings from your research area when it comes to pediatric oncology? Yeah, so most recently I've been working on looking at survivorship um, outcomes, so trying to understand um, the risk factors for chronic diseases that childhood cancer survivors have. Um, so one of those studies I've been working on uh, recently is with a, a group called the Childhood Cancer Survivor Study, and it's hosted at or coordinated at the St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. So they have a longstanding cohort of childhood cancer survivors who survived their cancer at least five years. And they've collected information on um, chronic health conditions that have been developed. So heart disease, lung disease, um, gastrointestinal issues, uh, but also subsequent cancers that, that they develop that are many times a result of their cancer treatment. Um, and then I'm trying to understand mortality as well. So one area that hasn't been explored as much are those cancer survivors who have a birth defect or a congenital anomaly. You may hear both terms used. We know that these children are at much higher risk of developing cancer. So for those with certain types of defects that we call chromosomal anomalies, like Down syndrome as an example, um, they have up to a 12 times higher risk of developing cancer than kids without birth defects. Um, and, and they also may have, depending on the issue may have um, higher risk for developing chronic health conditions or just have health challenges because of that uh, birth defect. Um, so I wanted to understand whether 
those with birth defects and who had survived cancers had differing levels of chronic health conditions across the lifespan compared to those survivors who don't have birth defects. So, um, so far, what we've seen is that these kids do have a higher risk of chronic health conditions across all body systems um, and pretty consistently elevated. Um, They don't seem to have a a higher risk of developing additional cancers, which is good. And that is a fairly rare outcome that occurs. Um, So I think some of our work, what we're hoping to do is understand how we can improve survivorship care for these higher risk kids and monitor them more closely so that we mitigate the chronic health conditions, but also keep them from becoming a problem with with their quality of life. Hmm. Do you also control for extraneous factors like perhaps exposure to pollutants, you know, peri-pregnancy and then post, um, um, when they are born and at birth and beyond birth? We haven't addressed those with these studies so far. We've mainly focused on their socioeconomic factors, um, Mm. some of their demographic factors like their age of diagnosis, gender, um, and also the cancer treatment that that they've had. So we can, because we know these cancer treatments can, so certain chemotherapies cause heart damage. Um, when mm. you're in life. So trying to control for the differences that the, the, the patients may have received in terms of those treatments. So, Got it. Got it. Thanks. Now, I imagine it's a specialized population. How are you accessing your data source? Yeah. So I had to apply to the Childhood Cancer Survivor Study um, to uh, request access to the data. So there's an app, you submit um, like an application of intent or an, an, a concept proposal that's reviewed by a committee within the cohort. And I think a lot of longstanding epidemiologic cohorts have similar mechanisms to request their data. Um, and then once it's reviewed, then you work with one of their statisticians and some of their other experts, subject matter experts, um, to develop a more um, extensive proposal and then uh, they, the, the statisticians at the, at, the co- with the, at the coordinating center at St. Jude's, they do all of the analysis. And so they provide me with the results and then oh, I do the write-up part of that. Yes. Yeah, so they're excellent at their job. They know their data inside and out. Um, whereas it would take me, you know, a very long time to understand all of the details and nitty gritty of, of the data. So it's been a great partnership. That's a sweet deal. Do you have to pay for those services or... No, this one I did not, but St. Jude's offers um, a a career development award that will support um, uh, the researchers' time, the early stage investigators' time, and probably some support to their staff um, to get that work done, to have some dedicated time to work on that. So I didn't receive one of those awards, but I still was able to continue pursuing the proposal without the funding. So then it's just finding the time on on my end to get it done, which has made it go slower. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wow beautiful i think this is a perfect time to segue into collaboration you know as you know collaboration plays a huge role in research are you able to talk about some of your experiences especially with cross institutional collaborations and how those have been beneficial to your work yeah so we have some great people here at ouhsc and i collaborate with them frequently um, but I also, for most of my projects, we will work with an outside institution, whether that's with the OU Norman campus um, or with colleagues at other universities who all have different, different expertise. So with some of my childhood cancer work, I've partnered with uh, the University of Minnesota. So I have a colleague there who um, who does a lot of work in childhood cancer epidemiology, and they work very closely with the Children's Oncology Group. It's the the main clinical trials consortium for pediatric cancer. 
Um, and there are some cohort data and some registry-based data that we work with closely there. So having that expertise has been critical. You know, I couldn't write that proposal just by myself and to submit and get funded. I need that that collaboration. And they always bring a different level of expertise than what I have. And then, um, but a lot of my work also works with um, addressing health disparities within Oklahoma. Um, and so I work pretty closely with um, a lot of the tribes in the state and the tribal serving organizations. Um, and so, and then other community members where, you know, we go to the community and meet with them and, and work closely with them to talk about, you know, what are areas of interest that you all have and what, what are some things that you want to see addressed in terms of some research questions. So I've, I've had experience of both working with other universities, but also locally within our, within the tribal populations. Thank you. So within those pockets, what would you say are some of the challenges in, you know, because we know that even though there's some, some beautiful things to come out of cross collaboration, it's quite challenging to keep together and the common denominator is you. How do you, what are some of the challenges and how have you been able to navigate those? Yeah. So a lot of the challenges are time. Um, and then being at separate institutions across the country, sometimes finding the time to get together. So I think scheduling regular meetings has really helped keep things moving. So even if you're not actively working on a proposal, still touching base once a month, once every couple of months to keep that connection going, because it's so easy for those things to fall by the wayside when you just get busy doing other things, like not intentionally moving away from that question. Um, And I think that's the same with our community partners here in the state as well. So staying engaged, you know, even if, if you're writing a proposal together, it doesn't get funded, then keep working together and, 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 and keep fi- trying to keep working on ideas to to keep that, that work and, and those ideas going. Okay. Okay. Thanks. Thanks for that. Let's talk about some of the research ecosystems that you've, you know, or networks that you've benefited from. And um, it's probably those that have highly impacted your career positively. Uh, are you at Liberty to tell some of them and how they've, you know, uh, how you became involved with them and impact they've made on your career? So do you mean some of the maybe training programs or? Training programs or networks or groups that you're a part of? Yes. Yeah. So one, um, one, Especially for early career investigators. Yes. Yeah. So one of the training programs I'm participating in now, and we're actually having our sort of wind down celebration in a couple of weeks, is a program. It's a new program through the National Cancer Institute. It's called the Early Investigator Advancement Program, or EIAP. If you just Google EIAP NCI, then you can get straight to the webpage there. Um, and they select a cohort of about 20 to 30 um, investigators each year from around the country. Um, I, they're just now in there wrapping up the second cohort and I participated in that one. Um, and so it's an application process where you submit a research proposal, at least a draft proposal, um, a letter of interest in your career interests, and then also get letters of support. Um, and then as part of the program, you get uh, one-on-one individual mentored grant writing training Um and detailed feedback. So we have a trainer, uh, a person who does grant writing training and then it reviews our proposal and gives us really good feedback. And then we also are paired with a mentor, a more senior mentor that is at least somewhat aligned with our area of research that can give us some advice as early career investigators. So we met you know, every few months as a program throughout the year. Um, and so that's been really a really nice opportunity. It's helped me get an R01 proposal in better shape than it was. I'm I'll submit it sometime in the spring, but that's been a really nice opportunity. So I think finding these early career mentorship opportunities or training opportunities, there really are a lot of them out there through National Cancer Institute, the National Institute on Minor- on um, 
minority health and health disparities also has um, training programs like the, um, the Health Disparities Research Institute, I believe it's called. Um, so I think taking advantage of those, it's an application, it takes time, and they often seem to, those deadlines come up quickly, but taking the time to apply to those and, and get that additional training, I have found to be really helpful. And you get to network with some really fun people. Thank you for that. And I think the applications come out sometime in December. So um, watch out for that, everyone. Or just make sure you sign up for their newsletters. Um, thanks thanks for highlighting that. So I know you're a member of uh, the Chocotelle Nation, and you also do work. And so that kind of gives you like both the insider and then the outsider perspective. What would you say are some of the best um, practices in engaging communities in research, especially when you're studying um important but delicate themes like health disparities and chronic conditions and particularly for those who might not be members of those um, communities but they have a passion for community for engaging for co- conducting research in those um populations yeah so um i've had good mentorship uh here and in, in my department even um through people who have worked with tribes and tribal serving organizations for a long time. And even though I am a member of the Choctaw Nation, I didn't grow up in Southeast Oklahoma. So I'm not, you know, as integrated into the community as many people are who live there and who participate in many of those activities. Um, though as an adult, I'm really trying to get better in touch with, with that community and make sure my daughter learns, learns more about it. But um, I found that, you know, going to the community, having these meetings where, um, you're there in their facilities and talking about, you know, what expertise you can bring, but particularly what um, what the what the needs are of that community. So, you you know, that they may not always align. You know, they may have interest in one certain type of health condition and I don't have that expertise, but then I can go back and bring people into our team that can help. Um, address some of those issues. So I think that's one of the things about community engaged research is that it's not about the researcher driving the questions and driving the research and the work, but it's about working together in a collaborative way and making sure that you're doing work that will help their community. Um, One of my colleagues often, that's a a tribal epidemiologist, often talks about helicopter research. So where Mm -hmm. researchers fly in to the community, do their research, and then they fly out, never to be heard again. And I think about that all the time as I'm doing my work. I want to make sure that we are um, working as partners. So in many of my grants that have been funded, partnering with tribes or tribal organizations, I'm a co-principal investigator with somebody from the tribe um, because they have ownership over that data. They have ownership over that project. And by both of us being principal investigators and having being in charge of the project, it shows that we have, that we're equal partners in that. Um, And I think understanding uh, that that's, you know, that, that need to be collaborative in that way. And then respecting, especially for tribes, um, the authority of their data um, and the autonomy of, of that tribe to have ownership over any data that are collected as part of your projects. Um, that's a critical piece to, to working with uh, these sovereign nations as tribes. I love that, especially the um, analog- analogy of the helicopter um, researcher, because a helicopter never lands on the ground. It's always high up already, mm-hmm. creating further power dynamics, and then you fly away and everywhere is in ruins once you leave. But we don't want to be like that. We want to make sure that we're you know, um, reducing the gaps, especially 
when you come from an academic institution where historically we haven't done a good job in being immersed in the community we work in. And I love your um, reminder of autonomy of data and having to include them you know, across the life cycle of your research. So those are really, really good points. Now let's talk about grant writing. Um, I think before we start recording, we talked about just, I think we actually talked about that earlier on. So maybe just um, adding to that would be, as you know, it's a crucial skills for researchers. What are some practical um, tips or advice for those that are new to grant writing or looking to improve their grant applications that we haven't talked about that you'd like to share? Yeah, so one thing that really helped me get going is when I first started my faculty position, um, I learned about some of the pilot opportunities we had here at our institution. So my department chair sent me an email that had a document that had a whole list of things um, that I could consider applying for to get pilot funds to get started. So it's they're often smaller in scope. The, the application may be a little bit shorter than what you'd submit to NIH. I mean, at least just helps you get started and, and it maybe feels not as intimidating as applying for these really large NIH grants. Um, and so one of those pilots that I applied to and was successful in getting was the Oklahoma Shared Clinical Translational Resources Pilot Awards. So that first fall, I really started working on getting that submitted and um, started doing that work. And as part of that pilot program, so I had a mentorship team that helped me make sure I could keep the research going, managing the budget and getting the data that I needed, um, and then helping answer questions as I struggled with like managing a lot of that. Um, and then... There was the OSCTR scholars had monthly, I believe, lunch meetings where um, you could bring your specific aims pages and get some feedback from your collaborators. Um, and so especially early on, I attended those frequently. And then we talk about specific aims, but also some grantsmanship issues and resubmitting grants, all of that sort of thing. So finding those opportunities. Um, going to grant writing trainings that are offered because they are offered periodically on campus, but you can also find them through different mechanisms like NIH tends to offer those or some of those early stage investigator programs will almost always include a grant writing component. Um, So I think going for those pilot awards, finding that mentorship team are really critical when you're just first starting out. Thank you for that. Um, I especially the importance of highlighting the importance of intramural grants. I see them like training wheels before you go for the big guns. And also thank you so much for highlighting the important role OSCTL has has played in your career. Are there some other um, aspects of OSCTL that you explored that you think would be beneficial to highlight, especially to those that are listening who might be early or mid-career? Yeah, so, you know, I I started with that pilot award and attended the scholar meetings over time. Um, And then as I started to work on some additional grant projects, um, you know, and as the COVID pandemic hit, we started to do some work related to um, survey data and got some NIH funding to address um, access to COVID testing and also access to vaccines. Um, And so once we started to get into some of these projects, I was sort of back in touch with OSCTR and we wrote grants together and then they um, were able to provide many of their staff to help implement some of the work. So they were going with us out into the community um, to do our our intervention events, to conduct our intervention and helping to train our students and our on our project staff. Um, so that's been a really nice resource is having access to their staff who have a lot of experience and 
recruiting participants for research and um, doing some of the the research, um, the pieces of the research out in the field. Thank you for that. I mean, I mean, you couldn't have said it better than I than I would have said it. And it's nice to hear someone else say because you know I work for OSCTR and. And, and I know you have a capacity there, Darren, but it's good to hear someone else say it. So thank you so much for highlighting that. Um, wow, you've accomplished such a, um, a lot in just the few years you've been working here. Um, can you share a personal story of just how, because I, I think you need resilience for the kind of work we do. And if you're very successful, it shows that you've probably applied the most amount of resilience possible. Um, could you share a personal story or an example of a situation where um, resilience played a role in a significant role in your research journey and the positive outcomes that resulted from it. Yeah, so I have a, a couple of things come to mind, and one one thing just to start off with is you can't give up when you're doing research because there's you know grant funding is hard to get. Um, and even once you get the grant funding, implementing the research is sometimes harder. You know, you have um, to make sure you have all your grants and contracts in place. And that can be a slow process. And then, you know, life happens. So trying to conduct research during a pandemic was really challenging and it yeah, delayed things. And I know that's an extreme example, but there always, there's always an issue with um, trying to get things done. And one thing, I actually have a quote on my wall here, and it's not an exact quote, but I was listening to a podcast with Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's an astrophysicist and I'm a space nerd. And they were talking about launching the James Webb teles- Space Telescope and how, you know, there's a lot of unknowns with launching this telescope. It may not even open. But he said, if it's perfect, then you're not on the frontier. So if everything's going well, then you're probably answering a question that's already been answered or already been done. So all of those challenges and all of the when you have to push the envelope in terms of um, new partnerships or new ways of doing some t- type of research... Um, that means you're doing something innovative and important. So that's one thing that helps me. I, having that quote on my wall that I can look at whenever I'm getting frustrated. So there are definitely days when I'm just like, I'm ready to quit or just ready to be done with some project. I'm like, okay, it's not working. Maybe we just need to move on and just try something else. But ultimately, I you know take a breath, take a little break, and realize we have to just keep pushing. So stay on top of things can, and you know respectfully keep, you know, sending those emails or making phone calls if things get stuck in some sort of review process. Um, but, and so those are some of the things that I've, I've, I've done. So it's not giving up. So you get frustrated. I think also acknowledging that you don't have control over most things when it comes to research. I mean, you can control yourself and how much you push on something and how, and not giving up, but, um, research takes is a, is a fairly big challenge and it takes a lot of people to keep it moving um so i think like i said just patience but also persistence and don't don't walk away just because something gets hard because then you'll never get past it so one example i can give is related to um one of the the research projects that i have where when i joined faculty we started um working on a research idea that ended up being funded um, that the project focused on um, looking at um, pollens and air pollution and asthma exacerbations. So my, the, my team had already been working on this idea, had submitted it to one or two inst- uh, funding agencies with no success. So I came in and they're like, Hey, do you want to, you know, keep working on this? What do you think about this project? I'm like, yeah, that sounds a really cool project. Um, so we submitted it several more times. So I started my, 
probably started working on it in about 2015. Colleagues have been working on it years before. We submitted it, no funding. Submitted it, good score, mm-hmm. but not funded it. Submitted it one more time, and we finally got to that point of uh, where we got that notice of award and we got the funding. So that was a, wow. that was five years. We got the award in 2020. So that was so exciting. You know, it's easy to want to give up. Like you said earlier, it's easy to want to give up when you get that bad review. You're like, okay, it's just, this is a garbage idea. I need to just move on with my life. But, you yeah. know, keep tweaking it and revising it. And, 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 you know, it may morph over time. But if you keep submitting it, eventually you'll, you'll get it. So listen to the reviewer feedback, listen to your mentor feedback, but keep pushing on it. I mean, spot on. And I think academia is just, there's a way it humbles you. You have to just get used to being humbled once in a while with rejection. And everyone I've spoken to, even those that are well established, especially those that I look up to, they still get rejected, you know. So it's it's, it's just part of it. So don't give up. And I and I love, love what you said about you cannot give up when you're doing research. You you just have to keep it moving. So hopefully that's um, encouraging to someone to hear. We're winding down now, and I just would like to explore just some fun, light, aspect so outside of your professional life what are some hobbies or interests that you enjoy pursuing in your free time yeah so i really enjoy reading i like to read sort of fantasy but also detective novels i like to sometimes do some nonfiction and read memoirs and um i love listening to podcasts so that's one of my fun things that i do i think the probably the main hobby i have that helps with like dealing with stress is i mm-hmm. like to knit so I started knitting, oh gosh, over 10 years ago. And before oh, the pandemic, okay. it's been a long time. I, okay. <laughs> I found a really cute scarf that I liked and my mom was like, why don't you just make it? And I'm like, well, I guess I could. <laughs> so I just started doing that. So um, I can tell, I see a benefit whenever I take a little bit of time in the evenings and work on something. Um, it was easier to do, I think, when I had baby stuff to make for my daughter. Now there's that is obvious of, you know, I'm going to make her stuff and she doesn't like it. She's at that age. Um, so, but it's something that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> something to keep your hands busy and give your mind a little bit of a break and, um, mm-hmm. take your mind off of all those sort of hard things about, you know, just life in general. So that's probably one of my favorite hobbies that I probably don't do enough. Uh, but you know, it's almost like the holiday season. So there's more opportunity yeah. in winter and cold weather. It makes you want to you know, knit things more. Sit home and just yeah, yeah. Well, I'm I'm impressed that you still like to read. I was a voracious reader. I still getting you know twenty to fifty books in a year, but it's a work. It's a lot of work. I think just after my PhD program, reading just became like oh my goodness. I don't know. I, I prefer doing audiobooks these days than physically holding a book. And I was the physical book holder for, for a very long time, but that has since changed. So anytime I hear about people still loving loving to read and especially the hard copy it's it's just so fascinating fascinating to me and if you've gone through grad school and you're working in academia and you're still holding on to that passion i'm like yeah you're one of the brave ones <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah i find like as i'm winding down for the night it's sort of sort of an escape that's why i like to read a lot of fiction books and fantasy yeah fiction escape yeah yeah because yeah. it really that just takes sense. my mind it takes my brain to a completely different place and helps me sort of empty to. out and yeah. stop thinking so much about everything that happened that day so yeah <laughs> my escape is through korean dramas which is a totally different conversation <laughs> but i'm curious to know what uh, po- what other podcasts you listen to i listen to the most random podcasts um so one of my favorites right now is just a fun really light one so especially at the end of a busy day i like to listen to the podcast office ladies 
So oh yeah. yeah, 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 from the office, yeah, Angela and then what's her name, Jenna. and Jenna Fisher. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. So that's <laughs> one of my favorites. But I also um, listen, have been listening to one uh, Lord of the Rings podcast. So that's gone Ooh. back to like before the Lord of the Rings in terms of the lore and the Silmarillion and the origin of Middle Earth and all of that. So I've got yeah. Um, I, so that's sort of the range. I don't always listen to a lot of really serious podcasts. Um, in terms of like really heavy stuff, I just liked them for entertainment in some ways. But there's also some good epidemiology podcasts out there that um, as I get ready to teach a methods course in the spring, I'll be listening to more to help prep for that. But yeah, so I kind of all sorts of things. It just depends on my interest on that week if I listen to what I listen to. <laughs> okay. Okay. Interesting. Interesting to know. So if you could travel back in time to give yourself or uh, your younger self one piece of advice related to career or whatnot, what would it be and why? I would be to have confidence mm. and trust that you are smart enough to do these things that you want to do. So when I was little, one of my favorite things, as I mentioned, I'm a space nerd. I loved astronomy. So I thought about, you know, being an astronomer as my career, but I think I worried that I either wasn't strong enough or I didn't see a lot of other girls going to this field. Um, not a lot of people seemed interested in astronomy, at least not the way that I was. So I sort of talked myself out of it and I think I was a bit afraid of taking science when I was younger too, because it just seemed so intimidating. Um, but I always liked math. I always found I was good at that um, and, and enjoyed it. But I even had a my one of my math teachers in high school when I took calculus, there's two levels of calculus and I took the lower level calculus voluntarily. And then she got onto all of the girls in the class and was like, not enough of you took the harder calculus and most of you would do just fine. So I think it would be to have confidence in your ability to do these hard things. I think I sometimes mm -hmm. still need that pep talk, but I think as a girl, I would definitely, that's one of the things I would tell myself. That's, that's very fascinating. So, um, and thanks for sharing that. I think it's something we can all remember to have confidence in what we do. Um, so in the next five years, how, I imagine now that you are kind of like moving from early to mid career, I've heard about the slump and just, you know, the, what am I doing here? And also there's, uh, from just piecing conversations together, there seems to be not a lot of faculty support for those that are in the mid career because you're not too inexperienced but you're not too experienced so it's that middle slump so for you what are some ways you're kind of like thinking ahead and wanting to prevent that and what do you think the next five years will look like for your lab and the work you do yeah so I've heard that as well so as I'm sort of in this transition between early career and mid-career which seems very weird I don't feel like I've worked long enough I know because I'm like I still have a lot to learn <laughs> yeah I don't really feel like I'm getting into mid-career but um yeah, I can see that because there are a lot of those mentorship opportunities for junior faculty. I feel like yeah. I'm in a very supportive department, though. And so those more senior um, faculty that are here, I feel like I could just go knock on their door and be like, OK, I'm stuck with this. What do I need to do? Or I was really struggling with a grant proposal. I was like, I don't even know if this idea is good. Should I just, you know, throw it away and start over? Or should I keep going? And my mentor, who's a senior member of our department, was like, keep going. This is good. You can get this done. You've already got it written. Tweak some things and keep moving. And that was extremely helpful. So I think just take, you have to maybe be a little more intentional about seeking out mentorship as a more mid-career person because it's not 
um, as obvious in terms of like those programs that you that you could participate in as a core junior faculty member. So I think just continuing to seek that out. And then I think, you know, I've written a lot of grants now. I've developed more confidence in grant writing. So just keep continuing to submit those proposals and try to keep working towards that magical R01 opportunity with those big research grants that we all strive for. Um, so I think, I, I hope in five years, I think one thing that I would like for myself is to to work on focusing better. I've always struggled with focusing on a single sort of research area. Mm. Mm. Part of it's because I just like learning new things and working with cool people. And everybody yeah. has and it makes it fun. Ideas. You don't yeah. want to you want to do boring things. Yeah. Yeah, and so it means that I you know work in a lot of areas and I try to tie that into a theme. But sometimes I do struggle with keeping that lane more focused. So I hope that over the next five years, I can do a little bit better job of that. But of course, I don't want to turn down opportunities and miss out on again, yeah, really cool yeah. projects that people are in really meaningful projects that people are doing. Um, so, yeah, I think, but con, yeah, continuing to develop these collaborations and, and, and keep pursuing some of these areas that I've sort of gotten some traction in currently. I love that. Oh, this is final question that I forgot to ask you. We have to do that because I know you've spoken a little bit about just this impact has had on your career. Your mentors, your mentors. I know you've had great mentors. If you're able to highlight them, do that. And then the second bit of that would be, I, f- I see mentoring as a midpoint and says that you always get mentorship, yeah, but you also find a way to give back. Intentionally, you should. So how, in what ways are you taking some of the best things you've learned from your mentors and applying them to your mentoring practice? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was thinking about, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about how I'm getting the opportunity to start probably more informally mentoring some of the faculty who haven't been here quite as long as I as I have, because yeah, again, mm-hmm. since I've been here a while now, we're getting more people, um, and also mentoring, um, you know, working with clinicians who are new, who like clinician researchers, clinician scientists who are interested in research, and how I can help mentor them in sort of the, the research approach and the epidemiologic methods for these studies, which has been really fun to work with them because they have such great expertise in their clinical area. Um, yeah. So I think being open and available for people to ask you questions at any time, you know, not being afraid, you know, I always wanted to be prepared when I had questions for a mentor, you know, I was going, having done a little bit of, um, my own homework to be ready for that conversation. So I'm not wasting their time. Um, but also they, you know, they've always been really open where you could just knock on the door or, um, just, and take the time or even having, especially when I was very early on, I had regular meetings set up with my department chair every two weeks. So we could just talk about early career challenges and early career issues. And she would help me overcome those. And, you know, being a new instructor and not really knowing what I'm doing in the classroom and help me navigate that aspect as well of that faculty career. So I think being open and uh, being, you know, being the type of mentor in person where students, students, but also other faculty know that they can ask you questions and be comfortable with talking to you. So kind of getting to know them, you know, personally as well, I think really helps develop that trust. Thank you so much. It's really been lovely talking to you and just getting the behind the scene of who you are and why you're passionate about what you, what you do. And I also learned a lot more about you, especially the whys behind uh, what you, how you started your career in pediatric oncology. And um, for me, I'm taking a lot today. Um, 
talking to mentors, taking other opportunities, how to deal with rejection, never giving up when it comes to research, being patient, being persistent and being confident. You're way more capable than you give yourself credit for, right? And um, the importance of not practicing helicopter research, but being very collaborative, especially when we're working with communities that are different from um, who we are or communities that might have been marginalized for so long. But all that to say, I really, really enjoyed talking with you today. And thanks for coming on the podcast. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Same here. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye. Well, that was the episode with Dr. Janet. And this has been a production of the Oklahoma podcast, where we talk about clinical and translational research in Oklahoma and the resources available to support um, researchers. Don't miss out on more episodes from this podcast. Subscribe today and um, also send us an email at oklahomapodcast at ouhsc.edu. You can also check the show notes for um, emails and how to contact us. If you'd like to be featured as a, as a, either as a PI or a support staff or whatever role or capacity you play in supporting clinical and translational research in Oklahoma, we'll love to share a story. In any event, catch you on another episode of the Oklahoma podcast. I remain your host, Dr. Gusaya. Bye for now.